show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hello there, fellow pilgrims. Welcome to another episode. Today's guest, I'm really excited about it. It's Father Gregory Boyle. Father G really doesn't need any introduction, but in case you are not familiar with his work, he's the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention program in the world. Father G is a Jesuit priest who moved into East LA in the early 1980s. He founded Homeboy in 1988. And uh, let me just say before we get to the interview that I caught Father G at home and uh, he was kind enough to chat with me on the phone and my audio capturing technology did not play nice with his phone at all. So I'm sorry to say that the quality of the audio is really rough, but oh my goodness, the quality of what Father G has to say, I would describe as essential listening. So if you're having trouble hearing it, I'm gonna be posting a whole bunch of memes on Twitter and Facebook, uh, just sharing some of the quotes because I think Father G just had gold for all of us. So I began the interview just asking him about Homeboy Industries and what he's excited about now and what their focus is on nowadays. Well, I think we, we moved from being um, probably our first 15 years being job-centric to mainly because gang members said, you know, along with the school, which was the first thing we did, they said, if only we had jobs. So, you know, that became our motto. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. And then we made this shift. We still employ and 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 pay people to to be trained, etc. But what shifted was now we're, we're uh, solidly healing centered, and uh, and I think the shift comes from beginning by listening to gang members, but then 15 years in, you know, once the depth of knowledge of who gang members are and what they have to deal with, it was abundantly clear that healing needed to be center stage. And so that's kind of where we are now. And do you have a particular favorite modality for healing? Well, I I think uh, the secret sauce for Homeboy really is this community of tenderness that trumps gang, but it also uh, is more powerful than any union or supposed union they had experienced with their gang and often uh, more deep and pervasive than, than their experience of family. So that, the context is everything. You know, a lot of programs want to, uh, they think content is what is so essential. So they have, you know, their 10-point plan, and here's our curriculum, and here are the, here's where this population needs to measure up to, and yet we are kind of, we have, we do have content, but context, which is the community of tenderness, is, um, is the more important thing, you know, and it's, uh, content is really secondary to it. So, um, that's kind of our essential piece, you know, that somehow that's our modality, which is tenderness is what we would say. And that once people, it, this does all the things that you want to have done. It sort of disarms them. It, it enables them to fully surrender to their own healing, to cooperate, you know, with the work that needs to be done. And uh, and then they can gain resilience. They can re-identify who they are. They can really actively 
repair uh, attachment, and and all those things happen. And then they are uh, newly resilient. They leave us after 18 months, and now the world will throw at them what it will. But the difference now is they won't be toppled by it. You um you frequently use two words that I think uh I guess I'd say they're gospel soaked. You talk a lot about kinship and mutuality. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit about what you mean by those words? Well, the you get into a danger with service, you know. So services, I'll acknowledge that maybe that's where you begin. The problem is we settle for service. We end at service. But service is the hallway that gets you to the ballroom, which is the place of connection and of exquisite mutuality and kinship. So that's where that's where we're going. And um, otherwise, there's distance. You know, service provider, service recipient. There's distance in that, and and you want it to be always mutual. So you know, so biblically, you know, you you have this notion that God says, "As I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential care and love." for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And, and and God identifies these folks as the ones who know what it's like to have been cut off, and because they've suffered in exactly this way, God thinks these are the folks who happen to be our trustworthy guides. So you don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the widow, orphan, and the stranger make you different. So that's that's how I think we're meant to turn this whole thing on its head. And and that's when you arrive at mutuality. There is no us and them. There's just us. There's no daylight that separates us. You obliterate the illusion that we are separate. And this is God's dream come true, which is kinship, that, that you may be one. And that's the goal. Otherwise, it's if it's, I'm going to the margins to make a difference, well, how is that not about you? And it can't be about you. And, all, you know, even practically, this is why people burn out, is because it's about them. That's why they get depleted, not because of compassion fatigue. You know, they, they burn out because they're doing it incorrectly, and their focus is uh, quite off. So... Anyway, I think all these notions need to be turned on its head. Otherwise, um, you know, we get stumped by it, and then we walk away from it. Uh, and that's why mutuality is so compelling and rich. You know, <laughs> there's there's so much you just said, Father G, that I'd love to take in a couple of different directions. The first one is when you mentioned the preferential option for the poor or God's preference to where it's it's on the margins that all of us discover God. Uh, I'm I'm a suburban Australian, and I remember in seminary my New Testament professor was from Ethiopia, and the first day of class he said, "I tell you what, you don't need you don't need another book written by a white guy," and he then proceeded to expose us to a, a depth and breadth of liberation theology including in my own tradition in Australia, Aboriginal liberation theology. Uh, it sounds like you've been somewhat informed by that as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think we, we tend to disqualify ourselves. This is, a whole, this is an odd thing that I'm experiencing, especially in Jesuit universities, 
I, I get a lot of talks, and uh, there's this notion that, you know, it's kind of the white privilege, but it's also privilege, uh, even even if you're a person of color and you're privileged, that there's there's a privilege paralysis, you know, where students in particular just feel like, you know, who am I to go to the margins, you know? Uh, isn't this disrespectful to even go to the margins? And again, what undergirds that is the notion that, well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to the margins to fix and, uh, uh, you know, uh, save, then, uh, and obviously it's about you if that's how you see it. You know, a woman in Chicago after a talk, a senior at a university, said, I'm afraid to go to the margins. I said, why are you afraid? And she said, because I'm afraid I won't fit in. And I said, as long as it's about you, you'll always be afraid. And I think, and that was kind of a frog that leapt out of my mouth. And I, I went, oh my God, why did I just say that? But, but I think, but I think it's true. You know, I think, I think we we disqualify ourselves. We say I couldn't possibly go to the margins because I'm not from the margins. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a person of color. I'm not poor. I'm not a I'm not a gang member. I'm not a, a former heroin addict. Wh whatever the list is, but but these are all lists that remove us from the fact that if you're you're a proud owner of a pulse, you can go to the margins. You know, and you know this isn't about qualifications. You know, if you're going to the margins to save rescue and fix people, okay, uh, I I get your point. But if you're going to the margins so that you can be reached by folks at the margins, well, now we're talking something different. If you're going there to receive people so that mutually everybody inhabits their own, you know, uncheckable goodness and, and, and dignity and nobility, well, then that's a different thing. Plus, that's endlessly replenishing. You'll never do You'll never experience depletion if that's your mindset. Did you come to East L.A. with this mindset, Father G., or was this mindset cultivated in you over time? Well, definitely cultivated, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I spent the first six years working with team members as, uh, as truly... about depletion and exhaustion and and I suspect it was all about me I'd be you know on my bike in the middle of the night and hey put that boozy down are you sure you want to shoot that guy and and um, and then I, I, I kind of the light switch was turned on where I went oh no no that, this is completely wrong and and it, it's like a conversation I had with a former gang member who was working with gang members in Houston. And he kind of, after a talk, pleaded with me. And he said, how do you reach them, meaning gang members? And again, I found myself saying, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can, can you be reached by them? Mm, now, that yeah. feels like it's passive, or I don't know what it feels like. All I know is that that's what it looks like when we turn this on its head and, and that's when kinship gets ushered in is when you can actually 
pull that off. And so somewhere, you know, in the sixth to eighth year of, of my 35 years of doing this, that's when I kind of said, oh, okay, I'm doing this incorrectly. And and it literally was like a light switch. It just turned on, and I've never turned it off. Yeah. And, and, and though I do, you know, all of this, I get tired and exhausted, but I've never felt depleted since then. I've never felt like I just can't go on, you know, that kind of thing. You know, the kind of thing, well, burnout, I suppose, is what it's called. I've never felt near that in the last, uh, you know, 25 years, I guess. Yeah, because if kinship and solidarity is your target, if that's what, like, progress looks like, or however you want to frame that, you're you're always accomplishing it. Yeah, I think so. Then it's, you know, again, eternally replenishing. It becomes like this this well of water that's fresh and renewing, you know. And it never gets stale because then, I mean, I think there are more elements to that. But, but essentially, if you can make sure it's not about you, then that's where the joy is. This is why we're invited to the margin. Not because it's a grim duty. It isn't. I mean, Jesus would maintain that this is where the joy is. This is why I'm inviting you there. My joy, yours, your joy complete. But we think it's like, you know, the harder thing is the better thing. And, and it isn't. The harder thing is just the harder thing to deal. But but we want the thing that that will issue in a kind of mutual and sustaining joy. And, and that's that's the point. One of the things that I've heard you say when you've spoken in public is you'll say to somebody, you are exactly what God had in mind when he made you. And I hear that statement and I find it to be um, incredibly disarming and life-giving. And it must be as well to the people you say it to. I'm curious where you came up with that statement. I can't remember, you know, um, I think there's just, you know, in the early days, it was, it was clear that homies, uh, you know, had a kind of skewed view of who they were. You know, and so in the early days, I had endless stories of, of parables of homies who, uh, who thought they weren't enough and that they were less than, and that was kind of the definitional thing with a homie. You know, he made me feel like I was less than. You know, they would say things like that. And I go, and then I found myself really quite genuinely, authentically, truly, Mm. deeply, oh my God, are you kidding me? If you were my son, I would have thought I won the lottery. And I have to admit that every time I've ever uttered that in one way or another to a gang member, I, I'm, I'm never fooling, you know? I'm not pretending. I always, because once you can see who somebody is, you go, wow, this person's remarkable. You know, even though in, in most cases they've all done egregious, horrible things, but you can, then there's, there comes that moment when you can just see as God sees. And then you go, no, you're exactly right. The problem is 
that you don't know this. You know, you don't have to measure up to something. It is the truth of who you are. Once you see what God sees, what we see, then you, you can kind of go, oh, okay. So there's this notion that, they, that they're bad and they need to become better people. And I go, no, that, this is the wrong language. Find, find the right grammar, which is, you know, you're exactly right. Now inhabit that truth. Become that truth. You know, you don't have to at all deny any piece of you. You know, it all works, it all fits, it all belongs. And 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 once you can kind of embrace all that, including your wounds, then you know, then then we're now we're talking. I, I know a lot of faith leaders who struggle with the gap between what they say to others that's true and what they believe about themselves. Is that that statement that you share with others, is that easy for you to believe for yourself or is that a struggle too? Well, I, you know, I think you do get to a place where you just, uh, you know, you, you accept what is about who you are and where you can and, and every piece of you, you know, you know, if, if God loves us without measure and without regret, well, you know, try to um, try to live that as deeply as you can, where um, where that truth is embraced. You know, you know, you don't compartmentalize and you don't. Like, you know, lately I've been thinking about you know sin, and it, just, it, it makes less and less sense the more you kind of. You know, Jesus sort of laid out all these kinds of ways of seeing, you know, from from blindness to sight, from oppression to liberty, from um, from uh, illness to restoring to health. Um, all these kinds of notions uh, that are really rich, and and he kind of lays them all out. You know, sin was one of them, and then we just we just embraced. And it, and I think it was a bad decision, you know, because we could have gone with something that was really more whole. And I, it, a little bit, once you know things, like, for example, once you know what epilepsy is, you can never believe again when Jesus, you know, um, heals the guy he says is possessed by a demon, when in fact he's having epileptic seizures. You know what I mean? It, it changed, you know. No disrespect to Jesus, but, you know, obviously got it wrong, as everybody in his time did. This guy isn't possessed by a demon. He has a, an illness. It's called epilepsy. Here's a pill, and that will control your seizures. So we know things, you know, and, and so the, you can take that to the nth degree. Once you know the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, every you know, there's a 10, a 10 kind of checklist and, you know, horrible things that can happen to kids that kids are exposed to. I, I don't have one of those on my list. I can't identify a single thing that happened to me that would be considered an adverse childhood experience. But everyone who walks through my doors has a 9 or a 10. And, and the 10th one is, 
is sexual abuse, and, and that's a hard one for homies to acknowledge. So I always say nine or ten, but certainly all nine, clearly, you know, mental ill parent, drug addiction, violence, um, all these things that they were exposed to. So once you know that, doesn't that start to color how you see free will and sin? Well, of course it does. You know, once you know science, it doesn't start to kind of say, well, okay, wait a minute. So, so uh, you know, there's a, a course that was just needed in, uh, in my alma mater uh, called Hate, and it's trying to address hate head on because of the spate of shootings in synagogues and white supremacists and all that kind of stuff. And I go, yeah, it, it'd probably be more sensible if you called the course Health that somehow we're being drawn hmm. to. Nobody's ever met a racist who was mentally healthy. Never. You've never met one. Nor an anti-Semite or anybody who hates If they're hating, this is not healthy. And they're not mentally healthy. But if you call them, if you demonize them, then, then, it's, then you, you've struck the high moral distance that separates us. And then you can say, I'm not that person, which is the opposite of kinship. Mm, kinship yeah. is supposed to say, no, that is me. That is the other me. We belong to each other. So I, I don't know. I think it's, it's richer to invite people to home rather than change your bad behavior. Because behavior is a language anyway. It's an indicator. It's telling you something. What language is it speaking? So anyway, I think it's just an expansive way of seeing, and, and I wish we saw things that <laughs> 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 Yeah, I think if, I, if I'm hearing you right, I think you're saying it's more about sickness and healing than right and wrong or doing good or bad things. It's, it's a holistic thing. Well, I think the moral thing is kind of a, a moral you know, it doesn't have very much to do about morality. I mean, I never joined a gang, but I, I'm, I don't even have any one of those checklists of uh, adverse childhood experiences. So does that make me morally superior that I didn't join a gang? And I lived, I grew up in L.A. Of course it doesn't make me morally superior. In fact, kind of the opposite. Yeah. I've never had to carry. I've never had to carry what these folks have had to carry. I stand in awe at what they have had to carry rather than in judgment at how they carried it. And that's important, I think. I think it's a really good word. Hey, Brennan Reed here, uh, producer of this podcast. Hey, if you know of a college-age student or 20-something who really wants to explore what ministry is like, they should consider spending a year with us at Discovery Christian Church out here um, in the Front Range of Colorado. My experience with this residency was I wasn't just getting coffee. I actually got to be a part of the church staff, and that meant that I had a voice in meetings. Um, I even got the opportunity to build a ministry from the ground up that Discovery did not have during my residency. 
And out here, we really uh, try to reach intellectual skeptics as well as followers of Jesus. And we're very passionate about engaging the chronic needs of our city and the world around us. Residents spend a year with us and they take a class that dives into, into the material of this podcast. They also take on leadership responsibility and you come away with a tangible ministry experience to set yourself up for a career in vocational ministry. Uh, so as a resident, you get to choose a specialty. We have youth, children's, worship arts, communications, preaching and adult discipleship. We also have local and global outreach and executive pastor work. We do provide housing with a family and we offer a small stipend. To apply, click the link in the show notes, or you can visit dc2.me, click the About tab, and choose Our Residency. So, Father G, part of the goal of this podcast is to provide some pressure relief for faith leaders and the way we do it is we ask our guests some questions about their own internal anxiety. So it's, it strikes me, you know, you're a Jesuit priest, you were trained, you end up working among people in a gang culture in East LA. That's a whole learning journey. But you've had this other learning journey of having to build an organization and lead an organization, which surely you were not equipped to do in seminary. So... On an organizational level, when you're finding yourself not knowing what to do, you you have to do something, you have to lead something, but you're not sure what to do. What happens inside you when you don't know what to do? Uh, well, you know, it's, you know, I've handed so much over to people who do know what they're doing. You know, I'm not the CEO of Homeboy anymore. I'm happy to say, and, you know, I have somebody quite uh, um, capable, you know, who, uh, who knows how to, you know, manage cash flow and budgets and all the things I don't know anything about. So I, I think humility is kind of a key, you know, even in the state board, board but certainly in, in the administration space. The, the humble and the poor, what would help and, and the stance that's filled with hubris says, here's what your problem is. And so the more that you can kind of just say, hmm. you know, I don't know anything about budgets. I'm not going to pretend I do. And I'm not even going to try to learn it. You know, I'm going to, you know, surround myself with people who I trust and who know this stuff and who I listen to. So um, I think that's kind of what you know, what is necessary, you know, and uh, to know what you know. And I, I, I'm confident in what I know, and I'm equally confident in the stuff I don't know. So I don't pretend to know stuff that I don't know. And I try to get that out there right away. Uh, the next question is about anxiety and physiology. Um, I believe anxiety starts in the body, and if you can notice it in your body, you can actually intervene. So it typically starts in either a spinning mind or a racing heart or a tightening gut. Would you be willing to share where it might start for you? You know, probably my gut, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I feel 
you know, I'm trying to identify times when I feel anxious, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I'm an introvert, so um, there are things that I, I don't enjoy, you know. It's funny, I, I just gave a talk in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they put me in a BNP, and I was thinking, you know, this is the difference between an extrovert and an introvert. You know, an extrovert would say, I love B&Bs. It's like living in somebody's home. And an introvert says, I hate B&Bs. <laughs> it's like living in someone's home. And I, I, was, la I was laughing at myself because I thought, yeah. You know, <laughs> you can put me in front of 20,000 people and I don't feel anxious. I feel kind of energized. But put me in a cocktail party before that talk, and I'm totally anxious, and, and I, I just want to, I just, I'm staring at my watch. When will this be over? So I think that's the difference of extrovert, introvert, maybe, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a, I, myself and a, a Jesuit in the house that I live, we always, we always talk about, you know, give us this day our daily dread. And, and so we, we always ask each other, so what's your daily bread <laughs> today? And it's, it's okay, you know, you kind of identify, well, I dread, you know, I have to go out and uh, meet with this donor and somehow get him to give me money, you know. So it's, it's kind of an exercise where you can identify what your daily bread is. Yeah. You know, and, and it's also a way to say, now this, this whole other thing, you know, gives a lot, and, uh, and and you can kind of identify. Doesn't mean you don't do the thing you dread. You gotta do, like the cocktail party. But you know, you kind of knowing, you know, this this will be unpleasant, and I'll feel anxious about it, and I'll dread every moment of it, and then it'll be over. So you know, the more self-knowledge you have about it you know the better certainly yeah yeah I, I think you're you're actually naming something powerful that naming anxiety actually is partly what gives you power over it so if you know that you're about to dread something you dread it less yeah and you that's exactly right and then uh you know it doesn't catch you off guard and and you accept the fact that this will be unpleasant, you know, for the next hour, this will probably be unpleasant. And then sometimes, well, that wasn't so bad. You know, that wasn't what I anticipated. Uh, actually, it was okay. Yeah. So in, in, in the studies of leadership anxiety, there's acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. You know, acute is actual danger or actual threat of danger. Uh, that is short-term in duration. And then chronic anxiety would be a perceived threat of danger that's not actually danger. So, you, you know, driving down the street and the car in front of you slams on the brakes and you think you're going to hit them, that's actual acute anxiety. But having to go meet with a donor and dreading it, that would be chronic anxiety because it's perceived you're, you're actually not as threatened as you think. Uh, and the challenge is our bodies don't tend to know the difference unless we train them. Uh, so with that very, with that very long introduction, you, you've kind of already hinted at it, but I'm going to try this question. 
What is something that you think you need in any given moment that you don't actually need? Like in my case, um, I often feel this need to be understood. If somebody misunderstands me, I tend to get anxious because I believe that I need to be understood to be okay. Does anything come to mind for you? Well, I think a thing that I, I don't like and I'm working on, you know, is I don't need to be defensive. You know, you, um, like, I don't know. I, I, you know, mm. said something. We were in the church, you know, <laughs> in wherever the hell I was in Indianapolis last week. And uh, I really was careful. I watched myself. But during the Q&A period, I, I told a kind of a story, which I think is sort of endlessly cute and charming and and people, huge, huge laugh, you know. And and a woman came up to me afterwards, and she was so offended that I would say this in a church, you know. And, I, and, and when I had told that story during the Q&A, I said, you know, Richard Rohr says, that only the false self is ever offended by anything. And I think that's quite, that's really quite true. But, you know, I've had people come up to me before and get in my face uh, afterwards and, and express their disappointment in me for one reason or, or another. And, and I've probably been more defensive than I was with this woman, but I, I, I caught myself, you know, at one point I, so I caught myself rather than get defensive, which I was starting to do. I said, you know, you know, and that's not my tendency. My tendency is, is, you know, uh, all barrels aimed in defense. And, uh, and, and I, so I was, I, I, I did half, half well on that. You know, I think, well, I think she left kind of feeling, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't resolve itself well. She kept, tightening the knot and, and, and I wasn't uh, helping too much, but, uh, you know, but I did, I do remember saying, okay, you were half okay on that one because in, in midstream, I caught myself where I could just reach over and, and touch her arm and say, I am so sorry if, if any way I just was offensive mm-hmm. to you. Now in my head, I think, first of all, God, God couldn't do this about something like this. God has never offended by this, and why in the world would we be? How lucky are we that we have a God who doesn't get bent out of shape? That's just the truth of the God we have. But but what's the point of you know winning the argument? So when you say you know I have to be understood, no, I have to win the argument, and that's where I have to catch myself. Uh, it's I don't know if defensive is the right thing. I have to win the argument. Mm. And why and why do I have to win the argument anyway? You know. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Okay, let's move our discussion to group anxiety uh, because anxiety is contagious. The way people catch a cold, and I, I know in your work you you've seen the I would say the fatal uh, result of group anxiety. But where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Well, you know, we've had, you know, moments historically in our 31 years when we out of money, and uh, and of course this this is not, you know, uh, 
manufactured or fake or in people's minds. You know, it's, yeah, we're running out of money. In fact, we had one moment mm-hmm. where we had to lay off, you know, 300 people. So, um, so every once in a while we can get to this, uh, you know, panic, anxious, scapegoating. Why are you bringing in more people when we can barely pay for the ones we have? And so, so that can spread. Um, and that's not to say that it doesn't have some basis in something that's real. Um, but, you know, um, we need to kind of put it in a, in some kind of perspective. So, Father G, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, especially at this early hour. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 